0: I'm just going to have my family do what I feel is right, cultivate, grow food, do right by the people in my community and in my family, and mostly try to just let everything else blow over.
1: Everybody. Welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jackson
0: Nikolai. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. We're glad to have you back for another week, another conversation about another great script. As it happens in... Um, like in in the real world, not the world of how these episodes release in terms of their publishing, but in the real world, I had just <laughs> been listening through our last episode in preparation to get it up and everything like that. And in that episode, at the beginning or maybe the end, one of us said something about how like the the – play coming up for next week which is now this week could not be more different (laughs) than the play from last week and i just want to bring us back there to start this conversation last week we (laughs) talked about thoroughly stupid things a quippy Uh sort of farce based on importance of being earnest and this week the play is heroes of the fourth turning by Will Avery, yeah. which is, I mean, uh, a, just to say what I said again, could not be more different. It just couldn't, these are two completely different plays.
1: It's so true. Yeah, just the, just the, 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 uh, we need to come up with a name for the 180 that we do on this, on this podcast from script to script because it's, it's kind of become a hallmark of ours. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it is definitely a big, big shift. This, this play, um, uh, super, super, uh, relevant play, still just a couple years old was, uh, when it was released, it was even more directly relevant, is really tied to a specific time, a specific place, and specific people. So, so uh, that's kind of an exciting thing to get to play with um, and and talk about and yeah this I, I'm I'm excited for this conversation because there's lots there's lots in this play it's one of those plays that leaves you um, both philosophically and experientially um, uh, maybe changed maybe it is certainly thinking about things <laughs> uh, certainly in the in the in, in the thick of of dealing with a lot of complication as these uh, characters are as well.
0: Yeah, in some ways it reminds me of the play The Humans Um, in in that one of the things that Will Arbery has said about this script, Heroes of the Fourth Turning, is that it can seem like a really talky play like a sort of philosophical, ethical kind of debate, kind of play a lot of conversation, a lot of deep thinking, and a lot of talking right? But that the experience of the play is that it is much more visceral and bodily and present than that, and that is also how I think of the humans, which to me when reading it feels a little talky a little kind of uh, in the realm of of psychology more than like the, the day-to-day visceral experience of humans Life, But then when you see the humans, that is very much what you get of it. And I, I've had the good fortune to see not not live, unfortunately, but I saw a uh, online recorded production of Heroes of the Fourth turning during the pandemic. And that I, I very much echo Will Arbery's feeling about this play that in its live experience, it is very visceral and bodily and present um, in, in a kind of shocking way when you actually start reading through the script.
1: Yeah, yeah. And there's lots of little hints that that's there, too. I'm sure we'll talk about some of them, but lots of the stage directions, even for the reader, the vigilant reader, lets you know that, oh, there's a lot of like intense physicality happening on stage. There's a lot of really, uh, uh, intentional blocking talked about and, and, uh, when, when people touch and when they don't touch is really important. So yeah, it's, it's, it's got all of that in there. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah. what what could, what could on the page be a very intellectual play, I think is also harboring just tons of, of, uh, embodiedness and visceralness in there.
0: Yeah. And, and it, it's a challenging play, I think, too. It, it, the ideas contained in it are challenging. The point of view that it really empathetically deals with can be challenging the i mean that this just the sort of specificity of what this play is is a challenge yeah. in and of itself and and for all those reasons it's a really enthralling piece of drama i think that as artists challenge is something that gets our blood up and gets us very interested uh and this play has that for sure has it in spades
1: yeah, yeah, definitely. If you, if you read some of the reviews of this play, um, getting into a little bit of context ahead of time, if you if you read some of the reviews of this play, you can see both, um, both the uh the joy of some of the reviewers uh, to have something that makes them uncomfortable, and also them saying, just so you know, this makes you uncomfortable. <laughs> so so yeah, it's 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 a great play for that. Excited to get to talk about it.
0: Yeah, I also just want to thank on the front end, uh. W- Although I I had experienced this play during the pandemic in a production, it sort of re came across my radar uh, in a class as part of my work here at the university. And a student in that class took it this play as one of their sort of class presentations. So to Dylan McCumber, some of the information that we have comes from that presentation and from their work. Uh, doing dramaturgy on the play. So thanks in advance for that. And I'm sure that information, that material, that content that Dylan created will come through in our conversation to some degree. Before we get to that conversation, though, we do want to ask everyone who hasn't yet to consider heading on over to Patreon.com slash no script podcast. That's the easiest way to find us there. Again, it's patreon.com slash no script podcast, all one word, no hyphens, no underscores. Over there, you can become a supporter of the show. What that means is that there is an amount that you agree to give monthly to the running of no script. It's incredibly, incredibly valuable to us to have that support from our patrons lowest tier is $1 a month. And at that $1 a month level already, you are contributing to making this podcast happen. I can't say it more clearly than this. The podcast could not exist without the patrons over on Patreon. There's just no way for that to be true. Running a podcast at this frequency of this type in the way that we've done it requires uh, a financial investment to make that work. And so the folks on Patreon are the ones who help front that financial investment. There are benefits to being a member, of course. I encourage you to check those out when you visit the Patreon page. But I think the biggest thing is knowing that this podcast exists because of the support that we receive. So thank you, thank you, thank you to those of you who are supporters. You make this thing happen. And if that's not you yet, if that's not something you've considered, please think about it. Check us out, patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast. And we'll see you over there.
1: And now, back to the script. Here we go. We're gonna jump in. Uh, I'm gonna give you just a little bit of context around the script and around Will Arbery. Um, Will Arbery, fairly new playwright. Um, uh, his works, his works kind of start um, uh, back in 2018. Um, uh, he got his uh, degree from Northwestern University. Um, and, uh, that's his MFA degree, <laughs> obviously, sorry, not obviously, specifically his MFA degree. Um, and, uh, he's an, uh, he's an alum of, uh, 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 the new dramatists and he currently writes for Playwrights Horizons. His, uh, first play, uh, was Plano and that was produced by the club Thumb as part of the 2018 summer work season, which, uh, was followed by an off-Broadway run. So that's great. Um, just, it's just straight to off-Broadway there at the Connolly Theater in 2019. And then that is followed up. Up by Heroes of the Fourth Turning in uh, October of 2019. Um, now, now, uh, this this play, um, at least partially, is born out of um, some of Arbery's desire to represent some more conservative viewpoints um, in a way that wasn't being represented in popular news media at the time. So, uh, this this play uh, received some uh, uh, appreciation for that, as well as some, uh, some, uh, reviews that were like, this is, this is really great because you're not going to see this in a lot of places. So it's, it's a good opportunity to hear really well worded arguments from the conservative and interestingly Catholic perspective. Um, to kind of bring you a little bit of more context into Arbery as well. This play is not, is, is not really, I wouldn't say autobiographical. Um, and yet it carries Hallmarks of some of his life. Both of his parents are, are professors at a, a Catholic school. Um, he kind of grew up in that culture for a long time. He uh, is from uh, he is he is uh, his his uh, a playwright uh, bio on my script is a playwright from Texas and Wyoming and Seven Sisters. So he's kind of from uh, from one of the places in this script, um, which is really really interesting. Um, if you have, if you think that you haven't seen, uh, any of Will Arbery yet, you, you might have, um, because he is uh, currently writing for Succession on HBO. He's also rumored to have a number of other, uh, kind of films and things in the works, um, with HBO, A24 and, uh, BBC. And, uh, as a, one more kind of like, uh, note on, on this particular play, uh, it garnered so many, uh, awards during that 2019, 2020 season. It is a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, Um, uh, 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 Arbery got the winning award for drama, uh, the Obie award for playwriting, uh, New York drama circle critic or New York drama crittles critics circle award for best play, Lucille Lordel award, outer critics circle, uh, playwriting award. So yeah, it's, it's all over the place in, in 2020 based, uh, partially on it's, just intense relevancy, which I'll leave most of that to the synopsis for Jacob to talk about. Um, but its relevancy to that moment, relevancy to that time frame, um, and yeah, you—he th- has a number of other plays uh, that are kind of in development right now, including *You Hateful Things*, a *Wheelchair*, *Corsicana*. Um, uh, so he's a, a, a playwright on the rise, as it were, both on stage and in film. Someone to definitely keep an eye out for.
0: Yeah. So I saw this play. Uh, produced by the Wilma Theatre. The Wilma Theatre did some incredible stuff in terms of their streaming of stage productions during the pandemic. I think we've talked about it before. We've also talked about before a playwright who is in leadership for the Wilmas. The Wilma is one of those theaters that keeps popping up in these conversations. And I saw their streamed production of Heroes of the Fourth Turning. It was unexpected. It, was, uh, it, it, it blew me away in a lot of ways, um, even as a piece of streaming theater and i'm anxious to maybe one day be able to be sort of live in the room with this play and see how it functions with people in the room because things about it are uncomfortable things about it are really visceral as we've as we've discussed
1: that's fast that's a fascinating extra element that i that i hadn't necessarily connected till you just said that 2019 into 2020 is the start of covid. So this yeah. this play is 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 not only intensely relevant to its uh, political moment but also in the midst of the the covid shutdown and and the need to move some of these productions online, etc. So yeah, su- super super uh super relevant production. Excited excited for it.
0: Yeah, and of course there was also like the Zoom production of it. That's not the one that I did. I did not see the Zoom production of it that that was big and famous and done. I saw a recording of a live stage production. And offhand, I don't know if it was a recording of a production where there were still people in the room or if they made it specifically during the pandemic. I don't remember that. But I remember watching it in shutdown when there wasn't a lot of other theater. And this was a kind of groundbreaking piece of theater for what it is. It would have been groundbreaking. It still is, regardless of the pandemic the pandemic totally aside this is a uh, really impactful important piece of theater for what it is and does but then to see that come out and make these waves as the pandemic is is raging through the country is a a totally weird astounding thing it's it's one of those things where you like you just can't always control the arena in which the, the art making that you do is going to be encountered. And when Will Arbery is writing this play, I'm sure he's not like, you know, there's going to be a global pandemic and <laughs> a lot of people are going to experience this play sitting at home alone on their computers. But right. that's how it came to be. It's just crazy what you can and can't control in this and other forms of art making. I'm going to uh, do the synopsis now. In truth, I don't have any idea how to synopsize this play. It's just it's it's one continuous conversation that is uh, you know, it has the unity of time, as we would say, in the sense that the time that the play the the time that it takes to do the play is the amount of time in which the play takes place with one small exception at the beginning um otherwise this is a play of a conversation of friends in a backyard and that conversation lasts you know two hours or whatever uh and that is the two-hour play um so it those kinds of plays are hard because it's so non-linear in terms of being plot focused uh, that it 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 this, this part of it is going to be hard. So what I'm going to do probably is be very, very broad, and we shall see what our conversation uncovers about the specifics of this conversation. The broad things that you might want to know if you are not familiar with Heroes of the Fourth turning already are that the play takes place in 2017. So this is, of course, after Trump has been elected president. That is uh, a huge part of the play. It takes place in a very small town in the mountains of Wyoming. Uh, a town where a small Catholic college is located, a kind of unique—they uh, they they discuss in the play whether it's a kind of Benedictine Catholic college in the sense of withdrawing from everything and sort of offering a place in which a culture can develop in isolation. Um, this may be like that. Of course, Will Arbery comes from a situation much like that, and you can see how that autobiography uh, feels its way into the show even though it's not a piece of autobiography. Um, This college is uh, highly conservative, uh, a Catholic conservative, which is its own sort of unique conservative culture. The the folks of this play are four friends who attended this college in some form or fashion together, uh, Emily, Teresa, Kevin and Justin, Justin notably quite a bit older than the rest of them. The rest of them are in their late 20s. Justin is in his late 30s. Of course, you discover why that's true as the play goes on. And then late in the play, Gina appears, who is Emily's mother, but also a huge institutional figure at this college, a longstanding professor who has just been elected or appointed or hired as the president of this college. Transfiguration College is the name that Arbery gives it in the script. And that is the reason for the play. This is why these people have gathered together to celebrate Gina's appointment as president. There's a party. There's a speech. And after all of that, which is all the before the action of the play stuff, there's a small party at Justin's house, which seems to be out of town, kind of in the country in some way. Um, and after the party, again, the party is actually before the action of the play as well, at the end of the party, these four friends gather in Justin's backyard. Uh, They're all at various levels of drunkenness. Drunkenness plays a heavy feature in this play, Uh, and they are going to catch up. They're going to argue. They're going to clash. Um, They're going to... Express long standing secrets and doubts and fears to each other. And then eventually Gina is going to show up, uh, you know, at face value to pick up Emily, her daughter, and drive her home. There's a reason why that's true, which I'll get to in a second. Uh, that doesn't end up happening. But what does end up happening is that Gina, who, who is this major mentor figure for all of these young people, is able to reconnect with these people after they've been out of college for some time, right? Because of their ages, all of these people graduated at some time in the past and have come back. And so in some ways, this play is a reflection on the experience of going to this conservative Catholic kind of isolated university and what that has done for them in their lives. Again, I'm going to be very broad. Here are some of the things that are negotiated throughout the play. Emily has some kind of debilitating illness which causes her extreme pain on a day-to-day basis and which seems to be threatening her life in some way or another. And it is uh, negotiated constantly throughout the play. What, what, how does this pain fit into a vision of a sort of Christian conservatism? Uh, what does this pain mean for Emily? What does it mean for her sense of the world, for her empathy for others, um, for her uh, you know, need to be taken care of? And I mean that in just the sense of her, her necessary dependency on other people because of the nature of the illness. Uh, Teresa, when she graduated college, she became a kind of a conservative personality. Uh, She's a writer for a think tank. She is uh, a player in politics and conservatism on the national stage. And she has sort of moved from uh, the kind of Christian, moral, Catholic conservatism, and I'm using that phrase not as a judgment, but as an actual description of the movement, the sort of moral conservatism that, that some religious folks claim, into the kind of pro-Trump, pro-Steve Bannon, pro-culture war kind of conservatism, and she really feels deeply that this is the direction for her and the folks who think like her to head in, and there is that causes some conflict, as not everyone, from this point of view, agrees agrees with her. Kevin's got a lot of stuff going on. He, he's an alcoholic. Yeah. He's really unsure of his place in the world. Seems that he has moved away from college and experienced people with a lot of different points of view and is struggling to hold all that with the kind of singular point of view that his college education and probably his upbringing beyond that led him to. Um, he is very drunk throughout the play, he vomits on himself, he is very sad throughout the play, he's at a real kind of turning point in his life, what's going to happen next for him is very unclear. Uh, Justin, uh, came to the college because he came from, I think there was some military background. He, he, he had a really, we don't get a lot of details, but you get the sense that he had a really sort of rough and tumble life and kind of found the Christian faith, found a new path for himself by coming to this small college that has really changed his life. Um, And he is still living in the town. It seems as if he is like the caretaker for the horses at this college is my sense. Um, And so is in some way kind of on the faculty uh, or the staff of this university um, and is um, he he has some kind of relationship with Emily. It's a little unclear exactly what that is. Um, And then I think we've talked about Gina. She comes in and has these very different ideas of conservatism, of the moral good, than uh, especially Teresa does. So I I know that's not much of a plot or a synopsis. I'm not sure how to do much better than that. This is a character-based play, an ideas-based play, a body and viscerality of being drunk late at night in the mountains-based play. Uh, And and it's just not a plot based play. It's a it's a it's a two hour conversation, a complex, combative, negotiating, sometimes sad, sometimes joyful, sometimes scary conversation about religion and politics and identity and who we are and who we should be from this very specific point of view. Uh, this Catholic conservatism coming from this kind of isolationist college um, away from town, and 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 it, it's it, it is done in such a highly empathetic way. Will Arbery puts so much effort and love into writing this point. I mean, these are people who feel deeply about what is right, who who believe in a vision for the future that is better than the 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 present, and who are who are passionate about getting there and not sure how.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Who are, yeah, definitely passionate and definitely like high intelligence people, people who have spent a lot of time on this, done their research on this. Um, So, so yeah, it's, 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 uh, yeah. Well, well done trying to synopsize what is, what is essentially a, a long negotiation and perhaps a like odd coming home sort of thing. You have the sense that this group um, uh, was certainly close in college. And then there was like this diaspora where they all spread out and have, have just now returned again. And that's always, you know, it's, it's not quite stranger comes to town. It's like strange friends return home or something like that. Um, it's got this, this, uh, kind of get to know you again, sort of energy, all amidst how like uh, one of the one of the quotes from Arbery is I'll just sum it up. I, I don't have it right in front of me is is that uh, all of these negotiations and arguments, the only way someone ever scores a point is by going too personal <laughs> on something. Um, and and so you have a, a a deeply integrated group of people that are also kind of relearning each other as they've come home.
0: Yeah, it is actually a feature of the play, a sort of astounding one, how well these four must have known each other and how close this friend group must have been in the past for this play to be able to happen. The level at which they are able to talk to each other's personal points of view, deep personal experience, after a distance I mean, is is really notable. Not all of them have a distance. It's clear, I think, that Emily still lives in town or has come back to town now and, again, is in some kind of relationship. I'm not necessarily sure it's romantic, but it's uh, some deep, longstanding friendship with Justin, who, again, is, is on the teaching staff at the university. But Kevin is coming in from Oklahoma City. Teresa's is coming in from New York City. I mean, this, this is a, a friend group that is reconnecting and is able to do that at a very deep level after time apart.
1: Yeah, 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 cer- certainly that and then there's there's also I think the, the some of the pieces that we slowly start to piece together of of these characters is that that definitely a friend group that was pretty integrated with each other but also one that cer- like kind of suffered a trauma to their friend group right at the end of their time. Um uh because of the kind of uh the the, the moralistic code of the school um Teresa and Justin, having slept together during college, um, almost are censured right at the end of Teresa's time. Teresa's a senior, Justin's, I believe, a freshman, if I'm remembering correctly, at that time. And uh they're almost censured. Um, we know that like Kevin knew about it in some way. Kevin thinks that they think that he turned them in for it. Um, uh, and and you have a kind of interesting uh struggle there. You know, Emily is a contemporary of that moment as well. So you have this like big event in their past, and then for sure, Teresa, I think the only one that I can say with surety that Teresa just leaves because she was a senior. Um, so Teresa goes off, the friend group kind of shatters. Justin assumedly finishes out his education there. And this is this feels like the first time they've come back after that sort of traumatic end to their time in some of their time in college and their time as a friend group.
0: Yeah, I, I mean I what I would say though is that I'm not sure that everybody knows about it. I mean, um, it's the kind of thing that's hush-hush, of course. And again, this is like – this is an an exemplar of the kind of specific culture because these people are going to get in like serious institutional trouble for doing like something that college students do all the time, which is sleeping together, (laughs) you know. So it's like – the, the, the actual fact that this is such a big deal that it happened in the past is part of the kind of deep portrait that Will Arbery is painting. But it, it we, we get the story through bits and pieces across the play. Actually, the way we get it is part of the story that at some point, Teresa and Justin slept together, were caught and nearly thrown out, but weren't. But not everybody knows. I mean, it seems like. Kevin knows and has the details and is sort of using that, the fact that he knows this detail as a sort of negotiating tactic in some of his relationships, really in in each of them in turn. The person who doesn't, at least to me, I don't don't have any reason to believe knew anything about it at all before tonight was Emily, um, who again is in this interesting relationship with Justin that we're not sure if it's romantic. How does learning that Justin slept with her other great friend, Teresa impact her? I don't know. I mean, and we don't actually get a much of a resolution to that across the course of the play.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So all, all of this like intense pers- personal Ness is both under the water on the water used as as a boat on the water to stretch the analogy analogy too thin um, as they are as they are uh, discussing these deeply divisive political things um, and it's not necessarily uh, so, sometimes it's divisive within the friend group other times they're resonating and kind of talking about another or something like that. Um, uh, but, but it's, it's, it's all, all of this is kind of swimming around them as they engage in really, in uh really, uh, contemporary issue for all of them, all with different tactics though. Teresa is very, um, very much a part of this, like push for it movement, trying to affect change. Justin has a little bit of different energy and like this kind of like. Yeah, a little bit more, I think you said Benedictine early on, a little bit more of like, let's just kind of retreat and hold the wall, you know, hold the line and kind of cultivate as much as we can from here, outlast the change and and be sure that there's something left as a result of it. So you see you see all of these inter- interacting with each other as they deal with these themes.
0: Yeah, I mean, in some ways, uh, amongst this four group of, this group of four, rather, it you get um, two kind of very different, different portraits of the world and then two people who are trying to make sense of not feeling like either portrait is is their experience. So yeah. you get Teresa, right, who is on the front lines of the culture war, actively writing for popular, conservative uh, publications, actively meeting, listening to speeches involved in trying to advance the, the agenda that, again, regardless of how you feel about the agenda, that person deeply feels like is in the right and is fighting for moral good in the world. Um, and is is, is, is the somebody that you know is willing to say this is not how I want to fight it, but liberals have made it so that a war is coming, and we have to be ready for the combat of the war. Um, The the socioeconomic combat, the political rhetoric combat, and then potentially the combat combat that is coming because of the way liberals have framed this battleground. It's not who I want to be. It's who I have to be because of the millions of unborn babies, because of the way in which culture is totally leaving behind a whole generation of the population. All the things that you hear conservatives talk about a lot, but held in the most earnest um, moral way that this character could, right? So you get that point of view, this culture war combatant. And then at the very other end, you get Justin, who lives in his little acreage outside of this little town in Wyoming, and who teaches at this college that tries to have nothing to do with the rest of the world, very notably throughout the play. It's brought in several times that the college receives no federal funding by choice. I mean, really has withdrawn. And, you know, that... presentation of a way in which to handle the cultural conflict. The, the phrase that is used a lot through the play is baking bread. Right? I'm just going to have my family, do what I feel is right, cultivate, grow food, do right by the people in my community and in my family and mostly try to just let everything else blow over. And so you have this spectrum between those two points of view between culture war and baking bread and I'm not making that up. Somebody says that in the play. <laughs> and then in the middle of that is Kevin and Emily who do not feel both of them that they have a place in either parts of those spectrum.
1: Yeah, yeah, you have so so definitely Emily who is kind of coming from she's done some uh, some work within kind of advocacy spaces. She's She lived in Chicago for a while as kind of like a counselor or something like that. She has friends that work for, she brings up friends who work for Planned Parenthood and, and all sorts of these connections in her life. And so she has an understandably nuanced um, uh, approach to some of these beliefs. She is still like a very faithful Catholic, still um, espouses conservative um, uh, points, but is starting to kind of look and see that she doesn't resonate with some of this stuff. She is very resistant to Trump um, and in the play. And, and, and you have, you have her kind of like slowly resisting some of Teresa's rhetoric, though she admits that she is not a debater in any sort of way. Um, She, she tries to find the words to resist um what, what Teresa is laying down. And then you have Kevin who um says himself that he feels unprepared, unequipped to kind of meet the challenge of the world that he is in. Um, with his uh, kind of Catholic uh, education and 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 sort of Christian background and his conservative background, you have him uh, you 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 piece together that he is in a a, a deep moment of of uh, disorientation of uh, he spends a lot of time, uh, he says kind of, I'm piecing together a little bit. You have to piece together a lot in this play as to what exactly the characters are doing, but he spends time on, on chat groups and forums and things like that, trying to debate different people uh, around, around their, their viewpoints and trying to understand things um, and, uh, and, and kind of espousing his own points of view and things like that. So he brings a lot of energy of like, I I'm, sometimes he's earnestly trying to make sense of things. Like he asks the characters to like tell him how this makes sense, um, often, especially Teresa. Um, but he's also dealing with just a lot of just, just, just like repression, honestly. Like I'm I'm trying to like stay judgment free in, (laughs) in a lot of my descriptions of these characters, but he's dealing with a lot of repression. He keeps saying over and over how he wants to, um, uh, he really wants a girlfriend. He wants to try to figure things out um, uh, as to how he's. he knows that he's kind of not picking up on social cues and things like that and gets down on himself quite a bit. So he's kind of processing a lot of his perception of his unpreparedness for the world as a result of his education um, and still, still earnestly trying to find a way to synthesize that with this group of friends.
0: Yeah, and I think it's really interesting that In in like the history of this friend group, the people that that Will Arbery has written as having this past relationship are Justin and Teresa, who represent this opposite end of the spectrum. I mean, it's a sort of complicating act. It is not that they are in conflict like they're not battling each other over, you know, what's the right way to go. That happens only very occasionally throughout the play. Part of that is just that Justin is not particularly combative as a person, He, but he, he steadfastly and quietly believes what he believes. Certainly content and form agree in his character. Um, but, but part of that is that they have this, you know, a romantic sexual history together that— uh, Gina actually later the, the the president and mother who shows up mother of Emily who shows up uh, later in the play even sort of points out that she notices is, is affecting the way in which they have this conversation, this history that the two of them have together. And the, the the way that that history is revealed throughout the play, we've talked about how Kevin uses it as a kind of negotiation strategy with Teresa to say, I know you did this with Justin to say, I know you did this with Emily later to because he may have feelings for Emily or less for Emily or, or just is in whatever has this thing going on that he's dealing with (laughs) I don't know what to say about it man (laughs) but the point is that he he reveals this thing about Teresa and even he is unwilling to say that it was Justin in front of Emily and what I think you garner from that is this feeling that everybody knows there's something between Justin and Emily um, that would be impacted by learning about this history between him and Teresa and then of course justin lies about it in the middle of the play as well he he pretends that he doesn't know who the person was that was involved in this scandal uh with teresa of course knowing that it was him
1: <laughs> right right <laughs> yeah emily is kind of an interesting uh crux of a lot of this play um in that she's she's kind of she's kind of the youngest uh, amongst the crew um she certainly is in this yeah you 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 mentioned it a couple times this kind of oftentimes complicated, I guess, um relationship between her and Justin, where um I think he's he's at least 10 years her senior, um, and yet they've they've uh kind of shared a lot of life together. He kind of she describes him as a buddy quite often. Um, and yet, I think it's I think it's fairly clear, at least from an analysis perspective. There's perhaps a way to uh, present it in a different way if you were to kind of do blocking or or intonation correctly. But there's some closeness between them. Towards the end of the play, I think Emily is expecting Justin to say that he has feelings for her, which is why she stays late. Um, and Justin, in fact, reveals that um, pr- maybe as a result of some of the conversation during the evening or something, um, you think at one point he was going to reveal he has feelings for Emily. Um, and yet what he ends up revealing is I think I'm going to go into a monastery in Italy and try to just do the small good work and pray for you, etc. Um, so, so there is this sort of complicatedness there. You have Gina showing up late in the play and Gina as Emily's mother kind of puts Emily in a weird middle ground as well. Um, of, of Emily, like being really close to the, the font of all of these characters, Um, uh, connection to this kind of Catholic conservatism. Um, Gina is a significant influence on Teresa, significant on Justin and significant on Kevin. They all kind of revere Gina. Um, And Emily went to another school. Emily, uh, uh, though Gina is her mother and she has a lot of respect for what she's done and her beliefs. um, uh, She, she is kind of this, this, again, this sort of middle ground, this sort of something in between who is very influenced by a lot of these characters. And yet, is on the outside of a lot of information, a lot uh, on, uh, on the outside of some of uh, she didn't get her mother's teaching necessarily downloaded the same way that the the characters did. And she didn't get the same sort of in information that Kevin, Justin and and Teresa are sharing.
0: Yeah. And, and of course, I mean, seeing it staged, the other thing that ends up standing out about Emily is the the stillness that she has to have because of the physical debilitating uh pain that she is in she walks with a cane her joints ache to the point where at one point justin carries her into the house to be able to use the bathroom so she's a very stationary character on the stage and the other characters actually do a fair amount of moving i mean for a play that's one set you know, one contiguous time other than one small scene at the beginning, which we haven't talked about much. I don't know if we will. It's a moment of hunting. It it, it actually is a little incongruous with the rest of the play to me. But it, it that happens. But other than that, there is this continuous, you know, backyard scene, and everybody ends up moving quite a bit. It's sort of written into how the play functions. People go in and out, they, they're very animated when they stand and talk. Kevin is throwing up and blowing his nose and stumbling around, and so Emily's stillness, the stillness imposed on her uh, by, by her pain, is certainly a notable feature that rings about this character as different than the others.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Versus the kind of frenetic, loud, oftentimes <laughs> leaving stage energy of, of a lot of the other characters. I do. I do want I, I don't need to spend a lot of time on that first scene, Um, but I do need to spend some time on on Justin and his lie that he talks about. Um, towards the end of the play, so so the the first scene is the scene where he shoots he shoots a deer, um at, at the first part of the in the first moments of the play, um he he brings the deer on stage he starts to gut it and he can't he can't finish it his hands start to shake and that's a li- I think that's somewhat emblematic of what he sees as like the way things ought to be like, we should be able to kind of live off the land and, and yet he's going through a significant moment of distress and this is affecting him in some way um, to do the things that he thinks he ought to be able to do. but but there's throughout the play there is this kind of screeching uh, sound effect that is described of of something off stage kind of yelling out screeching loudly kind of mechanical kind of biological the stage directions leave it kind of uh, intentionally vague. Um, Justin claims that it's a generator um, and that it's been a problem for a while and he kind kind of consistently goes off stage and when he goes off stage the sound dissipates and he comes back on stage eventually.
0: Let me just read that stage direction, because I do think it's it's valuable how Will Arbery phrases it. Uh, so Justin's in the middle of singing a song. This is the first time it happens. It'll happen a number of other times. And there's a stage direction. Suddenly there's a horrible machine screech. It overwhelms the stage. So that's how the sound is described. And...
1: So, so you kind of buy what Justin's saying, at least at face value, but it happens again and it happens again. And then, then towards the end of the play near, near the very last moments of the play, Justin confesses that this is in fact a lie that he hasn't that this isn't a problem with the generator as he's kind of consistently said, but that ever since he's moved here, there's been this sort of presence on this house that he's had someone try to come and cast something out of the house or bless the house. Um, And that this, this, this screech, he doesn't know where it's coming from. Interestingly, this is paired with a scene where Emily kind of, has ah uh, some sort of supernatural maybe experience? um, it's it's a little bit hard to to tell on the page, but notably by the end of a pretty extensive monologue where she kind of adopts some of the posture of one of her clients from her time before and kind of speaks with her voice a little bit. Um, uh, and in in a kind of censuring way towards Emily. um, uh, she is standing by the end of this monologue in a kind of like she kind of wakes up and realizes, oh, I don't know how I'm standing here. She's, again, notably been in pain and kind of sitting for most of the play. Um, so a very supernatural end to the play arrives as, as a result of Justin's lie and Emily's kind of monologue, um sort of other voice taking over. Um, uh, that that sort of wraps up uh, wraps up the play. And I, I I'm just intrigued by that moment. I wonder what you garnered from that moment having read it and and kind of seen seen the online version of it.
0: Yeah, it's wild, man. I mean, it, it, it's hard to know what to make of. So this is what Justin says about the screeching noise. Everybody has left except Justin and Emily. Weirdly, and this I also want to talk about this, there's a bunch of gunshots going on right now, too. Yeah. Um, which are kind of—they oh, they happen occasionally throughout the play, but then towards the end, g- gunshots start to build and become a regular part of the soundscape. So that's happening. Justin says—I uh, think he's already told Emily that he's moving to the monastery. He says, I've been telling a lie all night about the screeching noise of the generator. I'm skipping and summarizing a little bit. And then here's the quote— When I first moved into this house, I felt the most horrible presence. It was suffocating me. I had the house blessed. Friar Paul came and basically scrubbed it down with holy water. It didn't help. And that screech you heard, it isn't the generator. I don't know what that is. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And then they just move on. Uh Uh-huh. Emily describes—I mean, you've already walked through all this, but she ends up describing this horrible nightmare that she had, this terrible encounter that she had with a former client at the pro-life women's clinic that she worked at. And, and I mean, so we don't return to the, like, possible demon in his house? or I mean, like, I don't know— what you make of that? And it comes after you did a great job describing what comes next. But I also want to point out what comes before. Uh, Teresa uh, uh, and and Kevin have a sort of a violent encounter a little bit, and and as it ends up with Kevin being briefly knocked unconscious. And when he talks about um, coming back to, he describes a mountain climb that he and, Mm -hmm. I guess, the class took early in their time. To me, it sounds like a kind of thing that maybe everybody at the university does. They go on, like, a a backpacking trip up the mountain or something. You don't get a lot of details, but that's kind of the sense I get. And so he's telling this story about having done that when he was early in college and about a supernatural experience that he had, like seeing a sort of otherworldly creature in the night and not ever telling anybody a little bit about that. And he describes how um, that's when I started to change, is the quote. That's when I yeah. started to change. So you are, I mean, absolutely right on. Maybe with the exception of Teresa, that that three of these four characters have a startling supernatural encounter at the end of this play. or Or describe a startling supernatural encounter from elsewhere. Yeah, it's kind
1: of kind of very unsettling <laughs> end of the play. What in especially having ridden through a pretty intellectual argument from a lot of these these characters to have this sort of the supernatural thing. And I think you're wise to bring up the gunshots as well. Um, uh, the the so any anyone who has lived in a rural area for any amount of time knows that like gunshots in the distance is kind of just a normal thing um but but it's not a normal thing to be called for in the stage directions of a script um it's 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 something that means something you know that justin is carrying a gun he's he's kind of attested to that you just had a scene where justin kind of asks uh gina who is now the president of the college if he can start teaching the students like uh uh kind of target shooting practice so that they can be uh, both practiced in in philosophy and in war uh, and you know don't says, forget
0: that the play literally opens with him shooting a deer with his yep. rifle on mm-hmm. stage
1: yeah and amidst amidst while he's kind of talking about so so the the other piece that 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 starting scene gives you is a blood stain on stage um uh, uh and it should be somewhat prevalently there there's a blood stain from the deer on on the on the steps of the house that is and the steps are you know on, on what is i imagine a single plane pretty much stage <laughs> the steps leading up to the house are elevated um and so you're seeing it throughout much of the play and the the kind of final moments of the play are centered around this blood stain as well uh justin kind of wonders what exactly is going on with emily um uh i th- i think he perhaps again there's no dis- there's no direct um uh, descriptor used, um, in his questions, but his questions seem to be along the lines of, is there anything I can help? I didn't know that you were, he's cut off. Um, and, and, uh, there's the, and all of that kind of centers around him leaning on the steps over the bloodstain of the deer that he shot in the first couple moments of the play. So it's, it's a deeply symbolic, spiritual, perhaps even like uh, spiritual warfare-esque sort of moment that kind of hits you right at the end of the play and, and, uh, uh, and unsettles some of, the, some of maybe what you thought um, you, were, you were on the ride for right as, right as the play ends.
0: Right, and, and I mean, I'm looking at the final page here, literally five lines before the end of the play, this stage direction, and this is the whole stage direction. A gunshot <laughs> whizzes by us eerily close. Yeah. And then five lines later, the play is over. Yeah. I mean, it, it's like, there is so much that happens in the realm of, I think you're right. The symbol, the metaphor, the the story within the story in these last few pages, and there's so many layers. The supernatural stuff, the way this these relationships seem like they may be broken. The the I mean, the other thing that it has sort of defines the end of the play is that Gina leaves, and really what she's left behind is a lot of disappointment. I think yeah. all of them are really excited about Gina as the next president because of what an impactful teacher she was. And then she arrives in this night, you know, everybody's drunk, including her to some degree, and really offers each of them a totally different thing than they wanted or expected from their sort of hero, mentor, worldview holder. Uh, I mean, Teresa really gets dressed down by Gina for her participation in the culture war. Gina actually says some quite mean things. I don't think we'll have time to really get in a lot into that conversation. But says some really painful, sharp things about Teresa. To, To Kevin, she says, it really feels like you're on the precipice of falling apart, man. Maybe you should come back. And just just yeah. live here, work at the university. It feels like you're about to fall off a cliff. And, of course, Kevin has spent this whole play going, like, maybe I should just, like, leave this all behind for a while. I live in Oklahoma City. Maybe I should just explore other ways of thinking and living. And, and to that, Gina said, like, actually, you should probably just come back here. <laughs> away from everything and it seems like that's the only path forward for you to justin right who who wants this this gunshot this 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 marksmanship rather and gun safety courses gina says no i don't want no no like theoretical or philosophical objection made she just says i don't want guns on campus you'll probably convince the next headmaster or, or president or whatever to do that it's not going to happen with me no and just leaves, leaves at that. So she leaves behind this total failure of expectations of this mentor, this bastion of their worldview. And into that, you get these crazy supernatural moments, these, this gunfire, this, this debilitating pain. I mean, Emily reveals that she's been for 20 minutes in so much pain that she's been unable to move and hasn't told anyone. I mean, it, it's so much at once.
1: And, and, and to, 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 to even, I I reread the last like 10 lines of this play, like four times <laughs> trying to piece it together. <laughs> yeah. Try, like it's, it, it ends, like you, you go on that ride, everything that you just described, you get, you get like the last thing that, that I see in here that is like still connecting to the supernatural, Emily kind of. Uh, is talking about the pain, and she ends up kind of landing on "I love pain, I love it, I love pain, we love it," um, which is an interesting move. Right, right. And this at the is end, again when she's
0: in the like other somewhat transic, yeah, yeah. sort
1: of mode. And then just an like an absurdity happens. It's not quite absurd theater, but an absurdity happens in that she ends it with this kind of. Uh, catchphrase that she and Justin share this kind of doopy doo uh, word um the, just just those words doopy doo and they kind of say it back and forth and have this sort of playful back and forth that's kind of like and and thus we merrily stumble on is is kind of what I <laughs> what what the energy that I get from it is like yeah this is all all really hard and on we go. Um, is, yeah, is it's, kinda... it's
0: this little ritual routine that they share, doopy doo, yuppy you. It's a little back and forth. It feels a little childish, maybe intentionally. Um, yeah, it, it's a kind, to me. It's a little bit reminiscent of Dinner with Friends, the game that yes. Gabe and Karen play, where they try to scare each other, or rather, where Gabe tries to scare Karen. It feels a little like that to me. Maybe I'm not reading that as a correct feeling. There, that's my memory of it as well. And so it ends with that. Yeah, and <laughs> I, I, I mean, I have to confess to some. Some of this goes over my head. Truly, right? I mean, right. I, I'm not. I'm not totally sure what to make of it all
1: i mean to to kind of talk uh uh like kind of making you think of other plays it also gives me a lot of energy of the thin space where you you end on the most supernatural thing that has happened in the whole play even even in thin place like the the play is about being a supernatural play but the most supernatural thing that happens happens in the last 10 minutes of the play um and and it's just an interesting way to leave a play um to have the kind of crescendoing uh like the lie to be revealed that that I don't know what that sound is back there, <laughs> and I just and, keep and the reason why <laughs> I
0: read the stage direction of the sound is that it is described as a machine noise. All that to say, like your sound designer is not supposed to create the sound of like some crazy demon screaming, like a banshee like a, or something. Right? Yeah. It's it's like supposed to sound like a machine, and maybe it is. I mean, in some ways, you might be inclined to dismiss the supernatural feelings of these people at the end. They're very drunk. They're very late at night. They have a very specific point of view about spiritual warfare and the world. And I, I part of what Will Arbery is doing in this play is say, is looking you in the eye and saying, you cannot dismiss this. These people are rational, loving. They believe in a greater good. And so how do you handle this? If, if I were trying to make some meaning of it, one thing that I would note is that at the beginning of the play, they actually do have... Uh, Some fairly robust um, supernatural conversation around the meaning of the Eucharist, around uh, the the person of the Virgin Mary and their belief about that. Kevin has a lovely, beautiful monologue about what the Eucharist means and if it means this, you know, and that all happens to me in like maybe the first quarter of the play. Then the middle half of the play, you get into like more philosophy and conservatism than religion specifically. I would say, or at least then about the supernatural part of religion. I mean, they're talking about things like the panopticon, Aristotle, Heidegger, uh, you know, Steve Bannon, the, the, the feature of Trumpism. And then we come back in here too. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So then we come back to supernatural at the end, but it's a very different, I mean, no longer are we sort of celebrating the poetic mystery of the Eucharist or the Virgin Mary. Now we're dealing with the other side of the supernatural coin, the scary, the haunting, the danger, the spiritual warfare. I, I so if, if I, I mean, am if I'm looking for like in a broader structural meaning, I, I, I think I potentially could see that in the longer form of this play.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. The, the, yeah, the, the, the sides of the coin, I think is an an interesting way to kind of think about it too, of like, you have, you have that in the characters, as we've already sort of described, you have, however, the coin fell, <laughs> um, these characters are, t- are trying to interact with what they learned and what they're now learning as they've spread out from this haven of theirs, where they learn so much. Um, and, and are now trying to renegotiate with each other again as a result of that. We're, I mean, so, so we're, 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 we're over eye time, um, which is somewhat predictable with this script. It's a, it's a robust script, um, full of so much. There's, there's just so much like in, in this play, just like. The ideas of these characters. We didn't talk about the kind of titular moment of the play. The fourth turning is a as a kind of philosophical concept about how government constantly cycles and things like that. There's
0: so much we embedded in the, the kind of... yeah, We talk about the, I mean, the Grateful Acre. Yeah, the Grateful Acre is amazing. We didn't talk about the fact <laughs> that Teresa does to- cocaine. We didn't talk about right. this incredible discussion they have of the scandal of the particular. Which is just mm-hmm. an amazing sort of combination theoretical, religious idea. Uh, boy, there, I mean, there's so much in there that's incredible. Yeah. That, in- that is <laughs> such great writing.
1: Yeah, in one of in one of the, the one of the few moments where the playwright's voice kind of emerges in this play is in the discussion of the different roles within the turnings. You have the heroes and the prophets, and uh, I forget one other. But then the artists, and and Teresa kind of goes through describing three of them really kind of beautifully and compellingly, especially for a cult from a culture war <laughs> perspective. Um, and then she says, "Oh yeah, and the artists are like born during the crisis." I don't really understand why the artists are important, but, but whatever. Um, and and she moves on quickly. Um, and so, so you get, you get a little bit of that in the, in within the kind of philosophical stuff that they're talking about. Uh, I just wanted to read real quick uh, the end of a quote from Zachary Stewart in theater mania um, heroes of the fourth turning is a tough watch, but is, but it is absolutely necessary as America's competing tribes retreat into fortresses of affirmation. Um, this this play I think shows one of these fortresses of affirmation and some of the effects um, that happen when people leave the fortress and come back. <laughs> um, uh, it's a really compelling play in that way, and and thus like even even though like you know I personally would disagree with some of this, the the positions that these characters hold, even if you were to disagree with some of the positions that these characters hold, it's a compelling experience to read really smart characters dealt with compassionately and and uh dealt with um like given the time to expound on their views with each other for a long time um it, so it
0: is it what what's so beautiful about it is that the um this particular like broad swath of american uh, politics and religion and, and culture is not presented as like a block of people who think homogeneously and who can be easily dismissed there you see the conflict within you see people who all maybe share an opinion that abortion is a you know is is murder or or are parti- or are particularly pro life have conflicts around how that functions in society what the morality to hold that is what the gray areas are. I mean, you see striations of understanding. And and actually, it is in conflict with other similar ideas that those points are made sharper and more clear and more empathetic. I mean, obviously, so much of the trouble in America right now is that We just don't have a way to talk to each other across disparate points of view to such a degree that we can actually make our points of view more refined, more clear, uh, and better arguments, right? It's like— we're, we're so far apart that there is no way to test ideas against each other. And in this play, because right. Will Arbery puts five people that are closer together, they're not homogenous, but they are closer together. The ideas are actually in better conflict with each other, I think, than you see in a lot yeah. of discourse of people who are who start farther apart.
1: Yeah, for instance, Teresa and Emily have exactly the interaction that many people have had of like teresa says something um, and and uh, emily says well that's uh, we don't we don't we don't really want to go there and uh, teresa says well no one is used to debating um, uh, and so this is the this is the real problem and then emily says back to her well you're not really listening to me um, and that's that's like exactly the format that a ton of conversations go and then they stick around um and they continue to talk to each other they continue to kind of try to push at each other's ideas because of their connection it's a really great yeah great script great play great study of these characters and the the intense uh, moments like we didn't even talk about the much about the the um uh, the the eclipse that happens uh, like days later like there's so much in this play that is like directly uh relevant and applicable grounds you in the moment um and uh yeah super super great play we'd love to I think we'd love to keep talking about it um, we have to wrap up the podcast alas um, uh, but uh, we'd love to keep having a conversation with you if you have either read the script seen this play uh, been a part of this play in any way uh, we'd love to keep chatting about it with you you can find us on Facebook Instagram or Twitter at the username at no podcast the great part about chatting on any of those is you get to chat with each other as well so find us on any of those social media sites at the username at no Good podcast. We also have a Gmail, no script podcast at gmail.com. Find us on any of those places. We'd love to keep talking about heroes of the fourth turning with you.
0: Absolutely. If you like this conversation or any of our other conversations, we'd ask you to please pass the podcast along to your family, your friends, anybody you know that likes theater stories, that likes thinking about art and narrative and 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 point specific points of view in conflict. Send them our way. They can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, YouTube, all those kinds of places. Uh, we're also on Facebook. If you like our Facebook page, a link to the new episode just appears every Monday in the feed. That might be an easy way for the less tech savvy among you uh, or those you know that are less tech savvy to be able to connect with us as long as they have a Facebook. You can send them over there. We will be back next week with another episode about another great script. Until then, I'm Jacob Mann Christensen.
1: And I am Jackson Nikolai. Thank you for listening to No Script, the podcast. Bye
0: bye.